Chicago. It's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. What's up, everyone? My name is Raj Nation, founder and chief pitch artist at Startup Hype Man, where we help startups not suck at how they pitch themselves. How? By making sure their audience sees them not as the best, but as the only. And this podcast is the only show where you will hear from leaders in the startup ecosystem sharing a piece of their heart, their mind, and their story on how they are charting their own path, growing their companies, and choosing not to play the game, but to change the game. Before we get going, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Also, head over to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to our Point of View letter, where we share original articles, insights, and resources all to help you become the only of your industry. All right, get your popcorn ready and get hyped. It's showtime. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Austin, Texas. He is the COO of Funware. Please welcome Ray. Crowder. I love it. I love it. <laughs> you prepared me for it, but I didn't know it was going to be that good. <laughs> I love that you even, I mean, for everyone who's listening to the audio of this, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have caught this, but check our LinkedIn afterwards. Cause we'll put the video up. It, Randall did the flex and everything. Like he, he was, he was ready. <laughs> I, the only thing missing was pyro going off in, in the background. <laughs> I usually have a smoke machine in my old office, but you know, as we discussed, we moved into the new office. I don't have the smoke machine, you know, anymore. Small aside, and I'm throwing off your whole flow here, but I got to tell you this: yeah. you know, being in the army once upon a time, I used to know a guy, and I'm not going to name his name because I think he, I don't think he's still in, but he had a directional heater in front of his desk, yeah. and actually in front of his desk, when you're sitting in front of him, it was always about 20 degrees hotter than him sitting behind his desk. And he just wanted to see how people reacted to just being really hot. And like, <laughs> it was, uh, let's just say he was in and around the PSYOPs community, but I, I, I have seen this desk. It's incredible. I was like, I've got to get one of these. So anyway, back to our regularly scheduled programming. All right. Well, as I mentioned, he's Randall Crowder, the COO of Funware. Funware is changing the game for, um, for organizations around their customer acquisition and their customer tracking. They are helping some of the world's biggest brands better identify, acquire, engage, manage, and monetize their customers. And when I say some of the world's biggest brands, I mean the likes of the NFL, NASCAR, Fox, the Olympics, so many more. Uh, they're a public company at this point. Over the years, they've raised a hundred million, over a hundred million dollars in private capital, and then a hundred million, over a hundred million dollars uh, as a public company as well. And Randall himself has a, is a multi-time entrepreneur, an investor, very embedded in the startup ecosystem. Today, we are going to cover something that he's got a lot of experience in, having raised over two hundred million dollars in total capital for Funware alone. And that is raising capital through hidden funding opportunities. So Randall, once again, welcome to the show, raising capital through hidden funding opportunities. Why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? Oh, man. You know, it, it's one of those things that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you've got to figure this out. And it's actually where I started my entrepreneurial journey. I actually started, maybe it was the, you know, in a prior life, I was in the military. 
Um, so it's kind of all about know your enemy, right? And so I started uh, networking and working, you know, within kind of the angel community, uh, which led me to kind of the venture capital community. And then I fell in love with it and did it over a decade um, as an angel investor and then a venture capitalist with my own fund. And like, I really cannot impress upon people enough. You've got to know this game because someone somewhere is going to, you know, either beat you or outrage you. And so you, you absolutely, if you want to do the bootstrap game, I, I commend you. If you're able to do that well, execute on that well and keep hundred percent of your cap table, that's amazing. Uh, but more often than not, and I think most of the listeners and, and watchers here, uh, whether you're raising seed capital or series A, you're looking for a bigger bat to swing. And, you know, in my day, and not that long ago, it was venture capitalists or maybe angel investors if you were early. Now, there's so many different ways to think about funding. And I say that as a huge arrow in the quiver of every entrepreneur. You know, the VCs and the angels aren't the only game in town anymore. So the more you educate yourself, uh, and the more you learn about these kind of asymmetric sources of funding, the better you can, a better deal you can get. Um, but really also the relationships, you know, I, I think that's gets lost in this. And the reason why I think about it to answer your question directly is funding is less about the capital, which is a commodity. And it's more about the relationships you build. How are they going to help you with your business? How are they going to help you with hiring? How are they going to help you with credibility? And so the more sources of capital you can find, um, you know, the stronger you will be as an entrepreneur, 100%, and the more you'll protect your company. We're going to dive a whole lot more into that in just a few minutes. Before we get there, let's learn more about Randall, the person. Now, you mentioned your experience in the military. You went to West Point. Then you became a captain in the U.S. Army. No small feats by any means. They're very significant accomplishments. Um, at Startup Hype Man, several of our clients over the years have been members of the military community. So, I've been able just through by proxy, been able to see what kind of unique perspective they've been able to bring to the table as founders. I'm curious, not only were you a captain in the army, you also served time as part of that in Iraq. Your experience there, um, you know, it's, I'm sure it was incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult. Uh, I'm sure you had some, probably some very like, good memories of the people you were with as well at the same time. Yeah. Um, what do you take from that experience in Iraq that you can point to, to say that's helping me today as an entrepreneur? Absolutely. Um, what you do, not only, you know, when the pressure is on, when chaos is all around you, you know, but how you persevere through that, um, you know, how you respond to it. You know, there is, there was no playbook uh, for what we were going into. I'll be honest, I can't claim to be, you know, some patriot that was out there, you know, doing amazing things. I went into the military in the 90s when Rumsfeld was downsizing the army and I went to West Point in peacetime. 9-11 uh, was my senior year. I still remember walking into class right after, you know, 9-11 happened. We were actually on alert at West Point and they thought a plane was actually coming uh, and possibly going to target West Point as well. And I remember walking into class the first day and we had this like almost cartoonish colonel uh, as my teacher. A lot of military, active military members come back and teach at West Point. He had, he had jumped into Grenada or something. But I mean, he is what you would imagine is like the all-American military <laughs> colonel, you know, jaw like this and gravelly voice. And we all sit down and he's kind of staring at us and you know, steely-eyed killers, what they call them. Um, and he goes, well, cadets, you're all going to war. <laughs> it's just like, whoa. whoa that's a wake up call. Um, you know, when you don't really think that that's your future and like that, everything changes. 
Uh, but that's entrepreneurship. You know, every day, you know, it's not what you see in the movies. I mean, entrepreneurship is tough. Um, and they're throwing something at you all the time. And you were fighting for your life most of the time. Um, and you got to really rely on the people around you. And so, you know, whether it's life and death on the battlefield or life and death in the boardroom, you know, you have to build really cohesive teams. You have to learn to be able to delegate responsibility to the people you trust. Um, and you have to be ready for anything. And I think that was something that I saw, you know, in Iraq and in spades. And I think everybody who is, is served, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, there's so much asymmetry. Um, we were never trained for that, that war. We were training for Russia or China, you know, big force on force, large mechanical engagements. Uh, and all of a sudden you get thrown into a town and, you know, one minute you're, you know, a peacekeeper, another minute you're a trigger puller, another minute you're a civil affairs officer. And, you know, later on in the day you're handing out candy uh, and then getting shot at again. And so being able mm. to process all of that, maintain your humanity, you know, keep, you know, commander's intent and vision and keeping people motivated. You know, that's entrepreneurship in a nutshell. I mean, it is, it is chaos. Uh, and you have to be able to understand, you know, how to still lead uh, amidst all that chaos. You know, in the startup game, we often talk about pivots. You mentioned you go to West Point during peacetime being like, I'll graduate and then I'm like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> and then, you know, you walk yep. in the first day of class and find out you're going to war. I think that's like the ultimate pivot, right? So can you actually talk us through like, what was your mental conversation like when you had, when you had that realization all of a sudden one day that you're going to war? Yeah. You know, I think that there is something, you know, I've kind of had these moments of like soul searching. And one of them was actually even, you know, before West Point, you know, look, I was going to go, I'm, I'm from Austin. I was going to go to UT. I was already accepted to UT. Um, I was going to have a lot of fun. I was having a lot of fun in high school and I had no intention of, of, you know, serving my country. I'll be totally honest. Um, but then, you know, through a kind of a series of events and I'll, I'll truncate the story ended up, you know, having the opportunity to consider um, going to West Point. And so I started having this kind of soul searching moment of like, well, if I don't at least try, I'll always wonder. And, and there's a famous kind of saying, there's only two pains in this world, the pain of regret or the pain of discipline. And I've always shown the pain, you know, chose the pain of discipline um, because I hate the thought of regret. And I also, let's be honest, and I'm, I'll be totally transparent throughout this entire session. Um, there's a little ego involved in that, you know, like if I don't go, am I admitting to myself that I couldn't make it or that I couldn't hack mm. it? And I refuse to admit that. And so I end up thinking still in the back of my mind, well, I probably won't get in. So that's the both worlds, right? I can say I tried, I don't get in and then I'll go party at UT anyways. Sure. Well, I got in and then it's another soul searching <laughs> moment where it's like, man, this got real, real fast <laughs> and we're still in peacetime. Right? So now I'm like, all right, back to that same, you know, thought process of like, do I want to let myself down? Do I want to admit I can't do this? Um, I never met a challenge I didn't like. And so I was like, all right, let's get it on. Let's see what happens. Um, but again, still thinking, you know, down, you know, they're downsizing the army. People were getting paid like 80 grand just to get out of the military after graduation. I didn't grow up rich. I figured this would be a good chance to, you know, pay for college instead of my parents having to pay for it. And then you're like you said, you know, this kind of moment happens where now I don't have control over this one. I'm in it. Um, and you really got to just kind of say, okay, what kind of person do I want to be? Um, I do not put my name on something that I'm not all in on. I've had two relationships my whole life. I've had two real jobs my whole life. Um, I, when I'm in something, I'm all in. And I think it started 
all the way back then where it's like, all right, I'm going to be the very best version of an officer that I can be. And I think a lot of people didn't even know I was getting out. So you serve five years after West Point. And I remember when I put in my paperwork, I was actually stop loss my fifth year. So they got six years out of me and then I did two years of guard. But, you know, that sixth year, you know, fifth year when I was telling people, okay, hey, you're going to stay in. I was like, no, I'm getting out. Everyone was shocked. Like all of my you know, leadership was like, whoa, I thought you were going to stay in, you know, general track. Um, because I, I, I made the most of it and, and I did everything I could to be the best version of myself during that process. Um, and I think everybody needs to really take stock of that. Like if you're going to put your name on something, if you're going to do something, you know, you need to be the best version of yourself when you're engaging in whatever it is you're doing and not because someone's watching or someone you're trying to raise money or you're trying to impress a girl or a guy just because why not? You know, anything worth doing is worth doing well. And if you're going to do it well, go all in. The pain of regret versus the pain of discipline. If that doesn't describe the startup journey, I don't know what does. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about Funware. You join the team uh, as an, in- like, you invest in the company and then join the team as an operating partner and then the COO. You've got, pretty extensive history before then professionally in the startup game. Now, we don't have time to go through all of that, unfortunately, but at least talk us through how you first see the opportunity with Funware, why you choose to invest. And then, you know, I gave a pretty crude and shortened introduction of Funware up up the beginning. So maybe you can uh, expand upon that as well for the listeners. Yeah, you know, it, it, kind of, it actually ties back to the last question about being the best version of yourself because you know life is serendipitous. It's, it's weird how things work out. I think a lot of people, especially the younger generation, don't realize this is a very small, big world. And it's crazy how your reputation will come back to either haunt you or help you. And so when you're doing things, don't think, well, I'll just I'll screw this person over because, you know, I, I, I'm moving next month and I'll never see them again. Or, you know, I'm going to kind of be lazy in this group, you know, with this, you know, school or this, you know, program. And because, you know, who cares? I'll graduate soon and I'll be gone and doing something else. It's like, no, man, I, I've had weird people circle back through my career, both good and bad. Where I'm like, I remember you. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's a totally different game. Or sometimes when I walk in and I'm like, oh, I hope they remember it and they like me. Um, so in 2009, I was doing angel investing and, and I took over the central Texas angel network pretty much after it got started, um, grew that to be one of the most active angel networks, uh, in the country, uh, within about three years. But while I was doing that, you know, I was networking with a lot of people in Austin and a lot of people were coming here from all over the world. Uh, and you know, the founder, one of the co-founders of Funware had come here to kind of be an investor and, you know, I ended up talking to him a little bit and saying like, you know, Hey, you know, it seems like you still have a little bit less in the tank. Um, and, and I have a feeling you're probably still going to, you know, want to be an operator. And he's like, no, 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 I want to be an investor. Um, and so sure enough, six weeks later, he called, you know, calls me up and says, Hey, I, I need to talk to you. I was like, I bet you do. Like, what do you want to talk about? He's like, I got an idea for a company. And so that was the genesis of Funware. We riffed on that. I helped with the first one and a half million dollar seed round. Uh, and then I stayed in the investment game. I stayed, you know, as an angel investor and then started my own fund. But, you know, fast forward, we were both ex kind of army rangers, um, had a lot of, you know, kind of common ground, common camaraderie, kept in touch with the company just from afar. Uh, but then fast forward to kind of 2016, 2017, really started, you know, becoming interested in where the company could go from where it was. Started out as a custom mobile dev shop, but now it wanted to be an enterprise technology company. And that's what I was doing as a VC. How do you leverage technology? to make inherently inefficient industries more efficient. 
That's my jam. I love that. And so take all the information in the virtual world, curate it, make it actionable and inform real world experiences. That's, that, that's, that's my passion. And so Funware had an opportunity to do that. So I came back around, around kind of 2017 and, you know, there was plans to possibly go public. So I put about $3 million into the last round uh, before we went public and the old CEO ended up having to step away. Um, and, you know, the founder asked me, said, Hey, you know, is this something you, know, you think you could hang up the VC hat for and do this full time and help me build this thing? Um, and it would have taken a special company for me to want to do that. You know, being a VC is great. I love talking to entrepreneurs. I would say they're like little emotional drug dealers. Like every time an entrepreneur comes in passionate about what they're doing, like it, it just, it's a jolt of adrenaline um, and, and endorphins. And I love that. And I love helping them. Um, but I think it was about time, you know, after a decade of doing that to kind of be one team, one fight all in on one thing. Uh, and so I, you know, kind of started full time um, right at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. Uh, and really never look back. You know, it's been fun scaling this business. We're you know, this is the future of, you know, where engagement is going to be. And as you mentioned, you know, we've worked with some of the biggest brands on the planet. And really it's all about helping people establish, you know, mobile ecosystems that turn your phone into a mobile concierge. And so like our biggest deployment of, uh, recently is Atlantis down in the Bahamas. We go down there, uh, we tech enable the entire island. So it's 140 acres. You know, wow. anywhere you are in the property, now you have access to everything you could possibly want as a guest. So we've kind of tech enabled the guest experience. Um, they made half a million dollars through their app in the first like couple of months. And so it's really exciting how people are thinking about not looking at the mobile device like a content consumption engine and looking at it like a mobile computer that's always connected to a network and always connected to a customer. So how do we use that to influence customer behavior contextually? It's interesting you know, I'm drawing a parallel here in your story. And I don't mean, I, I say this not to downplay your past experiences, but you know, you, yeah. you talked about at West Point, you're there, you think it's going to go one way. And then one day you're asked to go to war. You're an investor. You think you're going to keep being an investor. And then one day the founder <laughs> of the company says, do you want to go to war with us? Right. But essentially, do you want to join our team and go to war with us every day and do this thing? Um, and as well you mentioned, said. right, it's, it's the willingness to, and the, the mindset of going all in once you decide to say, yeah, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Let's talk about um, our main topic, which is raising capital through these hidden funding opportunities. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have raised over $200 million, and that's across essentially evenly split between private capital and public capital. Let's rewind back to the very beginning of the fundraising journey here. Now, obviously, you put in money into the company, but then as you started to like get this thing going, let's say beyond the seed of capital you put in, what were your expectations? And maybe this is even pre-Funware altogether, just original entrepreneur um, experience. What were you like under the impression that the available options of funding were to you? I will say, I think you're, you, the insight in that question is spot on. So I think it's what most people face. Like I, I just, I always assume that some rich person is going to kind of help you start your company. Like that's just, that, that was, that was what it was. You know, you, you try to network your face off, you find somebody with more money and more time than they know what to do with, and you try to convince them to give it to you. And, and that's, I think how most people's journeys start. What's really cool now is, you know, even at that, you know, let's kind of take it in phases, right? So at that seed level, you know, yes, angels are crucial. Um, and, and I think this is probably my, well, this was my biggest challenge. As much as I love to talk and as much as I have a lot of the stuff to say, 
I actually don't enjoy being a salesperson. It just so happens that every kind of part of my life, <laughs> somebody had to do it. So I'm like, all right, I'll do it. You know, but I also got made fun of by my employees two weeks ago for taking out the trash. Like they all show it was on my birthday and I was taking the trash out and like they they what they, they were pulling up and they were like, Why are you taking the trash out? I'm like, because it needs to be taken out. They're like, Why are you doing it though? And it's your birthday. I was like, I don't care. Like I don't have any ego in this. Like I do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. And so, you know, I think a lot of times people don't realize how important it is getting out of your own head and just, you know, doing what needs to be done, going to those meetups, going to, you know, alumni receptions, you know, you have to find these people and you don't just do it acutely, you know, relationships are built over time. And so you got to get going. Like if you can't just be like, okay, I've got about, you know, two more weeks of runway um, through my own, you know, checking, I better go raise some money. Well, you're about to start a six month process. And so you've got to plan ahead for that and you need to build those relationships. You know, what are your you know, kind of primary endpoints? And then what are your secondary and tertiary, you know, kind of spheres of influence and how do you get, you know, in front of the right people? That's actually the first checkbox for investors. Can you access capital? Because if you come to me and you say, I've got nothing raised and none of my friends and family are putting anything into this and I don't really have that much skin in the game, but I want to use your money good on you. Because if you can play with the house's money, that's awesome. But I'm immediately going to judge you for that. I'm going to be like, so you don't have anybody, no relationship that said, I love this person and this person is going to be successful and I'm willing to go in with this person. And if you don't have that person, at least you, you know, I'll, I'll invest in the teacher who's mortgaged her house, maxed out her credit cards, over, you know, some hedge fund manager who's, you know, got more money than anybody and doesn't want to put anything in it. And, you know, can, you know, I call it my walkaway factor. You know, what's your walkaway factor? You know, if you, if I invest in you, can you leave me holding the bag and go do something else? And that teacher, she can't, she's got to make it work. She's got to run through walls to be successful. And so, you know, the first, you know, first funding is really yourself, credit cards, you know, cashing out your 401k, you know, I don't, I'm not telling anybody to do that, but that's what people do. Um, you know, and then friends and family. And that, that is, that is your pre-seed round, you know, people that can show that they believe in you. Then it's your seed round. All right. Now I'm thinking about broader, you know, relationships, people they know, people I know, people I've networked with, go with your alumni groups. That's huge. Um, but again, all of this is angels. What's cool over the last probably 20 years and what we were riffing on even before the call is all these other opportunities are now popping up to help you in the seed stage. You know, crowdfunding, really cool opportunity now to really just reach and talk to people just like you, normal people who are a lot easier to sell than, you know, a lot of, you know, curmudgeon old VCs. <laughs> um, and so crowdfunding is really cool. Um, there are ways to bootstrap. We did this at Funware. It's called customer-funded R&D. You know, if you have a product, some of the things that I see entrepreneurs doing that are a huge mistake is thinking that one more feature is going to just solve everything. And really what they are is they're nervous. They're too nervous that someone's going to tell them their baby's ugly and they're too nervous to put it in the front you know, into the hands of a customer. Uh, but your customers will tell you what they want. They'll tell you what they want to pay for. And so the minute you get, you know, you'll hear these acronyms all the time, you know, in army and entrepreneurship, but you know, you, the minute you have that minimally viable product, that MVP or that POC, that proof of concept, Get in the hands of a customer. You know, you can hack things together to kind of see what customers want, see what they want to do. It can feel a certain way to them, but maybe, you know, it's a different way to you. You know, a SaaS company might have all these inputs 
but you know, you might not be able to afford to build a SaaS platform. So maybe you just use a really cool Google Docs that feels like you're putting in the input, but in the background, you're running around collecting all the inputs and then delivering yeah. them the service. Um, so there's a lot of ways to get something into the hands of your customer, have them start paying, have them fund some of the business. Angels love that. VCs love that. It shows traction um, and it shows a lot of hustle. Um, and then, you know, kind of once you move past seed and you kind of move past kind of crowdfunding, customer funded R&D, you really start playing at a higher level. And I think that's the concern I have with a lot of entrepreneurs, especially here in Austin. Um, you'll always hear this term dilution. You're always worried about, okay, if I, if I raise this much money, how much of the company am I going to have to give up for that? And then what are the kind of milestones? You know, how am I going to build value with the money I just brought in? So I'm balancing dilution versus value creation. And so I think what's a challenge is this, and you hear this all the time, do you want to own a smaller piece of something bigger and growing, or do you want a larger piece of something that, you know, maybe doesn't have the resources to go where it needs to go? And so not only do you have to kind of keep up with the Joneses, you have to keep up with the market and the opportunity. In Austin, we're a bootstrap town. Um, there's not, they're, they're starting to move here now, but there wasn't a lot of VC players here. Um, and what ended up happening was there's a lot of really good ideas in Austin. And all of a sudden they'd be like, okay, we just raised, you know, $2 million, you know, and now we're going to kind of, that'll last us about two years. And then someone in Silicon Valley raises $300 million and they just lap them 20 times and they're off to the races <laughs> and no one will ever hear about it again. So, you know, you don't want to be relegated to the annals of history um, because you didn't raise enough or be aggressive enough in your growth. Um, and so when you want to raise aggressively, VCs are still, um, largely your best bet. Um, one, because of the relationships they have. Two, because of, you know, their decision-making ability. They can make decisions fast. Um, and just really that credibility that they lend. Now, Funware, we didn't really do that. Um, and, and some of that was, you know, the founder's choice. You know, he had, he had raised money from VCs in the past, wanted to kind of own, you'll see a lot of serial entrepreneurs, I think, try to do more with angels a lot of times um, if they had a bad experience with VCs or if they don't feel like they can access the VCs. And so Funware was largely funded by angels, very big rounds um, by angels. And then customer funded R&D. And then the other one that I haven't mentioned, strategics. So we got in a strategic investment from Cisco, strategic investment from Samsung. Um, hit or miss. You know, those can be good if you can tie business fundamentals to it. But if you're just raising money and they're investing off their balance sheet, they're not going to have that same kind of aligned incentive to help you grow the business. You know, half the time, the person that deploys the money isn't even going to be in that role, you know, a year from there. There's so much turnover at these large corporate companies. So, and then what ends up happening is you try to raise another round and somebody says, okay, well, who's been in the deal so far? You're like, oh yeah, we got Cisco, Samsung, we got all these other people, these angel investors You're like, okay, cool. How much are they investing in this current round? And you're like, well, the angels are done. They're not, they don't have any more money to invest. And Cisco and Samsung, we haven't talked to them in a while. So they're not, they're not investing anything. We're raising a new round. And they're like, oh, so no one. And you're like, ah. And that's a real dirty little secret when it comes to investing. Like, and, and this happens a lot in Silicon Valley where you might love getting, you know, Sequoia into your Series A, but if they don't invest in your Series B, you might be screwed. Mm. And so you really got to think about, you know, who's going to maintain enough dry powder to keep investing with you if 
people are going to have that preconceived notion that they're going to continue to invest with you if there's a good company here to invest in. And so picking and choosing is important. I want to come back and just share a quick anecdote on the the customer-funded R&D point, um, because it comes up a good amount of times in the startups that we work with when we're building out their pitches, where they have this concern that their story isn't going to look good because you know maybe they've been around for three, four years, they've produced mm-hmm. some level of revenue, but they're like, no, but that's going to show that like we're not growing fast enough or that you know we're not a viable opportunity. And so one of the things we'll work with them on is being like, well, no, we need to like you need to reshape how you look at this in the first place. And actually, what you have here is three years of funded R and D by your customers. Yeah. It's not that yeah. you were a I don't know, a 15K MRR company for or whatever. Yeah. It's not that you only did 100K in ARR for three straight years. It's that you had a $300,000 uh, $300, in paid R&D. Most companies mm-hmm. have to pay others to get to, to do R&D. <laughs> you got paid for your R&D. And what that means is you got the product to a point where it's ready for funding. You're not asking for yeah. money to start making tweaks and tinkers. You, you've established the product and now you're really ready yeah. to go to market. And that perception shift uh, internally for the founder is like life-changing. But then when they go out and pitch that to the investor, like it's literally pitching two different companies at that point. Yeah. Oh man, you, you said something so important and I hope really people you know, took that in and really listened to it. You know, how you frame your narrative and or reframe your narrative is, is so critical um, and, and really getting that dialed in is so important. And I think that for you know, what I always see, you know, look, look at Amazon. I mean, Amazon, you know, you could have invested in Amazon. I mean, so not even a private company, right? Public company, you know, all the reporting in the world, all the information in the world, um, all the opportunities in the world. Ten years, we could have we, none of us would be working right now if we had paid attention to Amazon when they were trading below $100 for 10 years. You could have just treated that as your 401k. You know, Amazon understood that we were becoming an on-demand economy 10 years before anyone even knew what that term was. And not only on-demand products, but on-demand cloud services. So for 10 years, they traded below 100. On four separate occasions, the stock crashed by 60% or more. On one occasion, it crashed by 90% from 100 to like (laughs) six bucks. For 10 years, you could have invested in Amazon below $100, and they persevered and stuck to their knitting. They were building data centers in the middle of nowhere. No one knew why. They were building warehouses in the middle of nowhere. Everyone thought they were crazy. And all of a sudden, the world woke up, kind of 2010, 2011, 2012, and they realized, oh, my God, you just built an unbeatable competitive advantage. (laughs) And nobody else saw it coming. So they they reframed their narrative. They weren't just squandering money on brick and mortar. They were building the infrastructure required to support an on-demand economy. And the on-demand economy just took a little while to catch up. So when you skate where the puck is headed, man, you can play, you can play to win, you can play big. And so you're, you're 100% right um, that, you know, look and just look at history. I mean, from Apple to Kodak, to all the big companies everyone loves, they were on the verge of bankruptcy. They had, you know, shitty products. They've been, you know, in crazy lawsuits. They've had founder drama. You know, at the end of the day, if you are building something of value and you have good product market fit, you will be successful regardless. And no one's going to be like, hey, this is, I, I realize that you just invented cold fusion, but you've been around for 10 years. Uh, you know, I'm not interested in cold fusion because you've been around, but nobody cares. You know, the minute you have a product that somebody wants, 
somebody will think they can make money on it or make money with you or make money from you, they're all in. I guarantee it. I want to go into um, some of the other funding instruments that you've got experience with, like sovereign wealth funds. I do want to double down a little bit on alumni groups and then SPACs as well. Before we get there, one thing that's important for everyone listening to understand is that in Funware's growth, aside from the capital itself, what they've really use that capital in part, at least to do, is really establish their product for scale. And that's something that's so important on the fundraising journey. And let's look at your app for a second or your piece of software that you've developed. Maybe you've got it launched. Awesome. That's not so much the hard part. It's actually making it stay afloat on the market. That's where it gets really challenging. And about four in five apps launched in app stores get deleted after a single use. If you didn't know that stat... It's harsh, but yeah. it's true. And when I look at my phone, I've got um, so many apps that are sitting there, but they got the cloud icon next to them because I used them once and never used them again. So then <laughs> how do you thrive without a profound product strategy experience? Well, you're not doomed to failure if you don't have the know-how in-house. You just need an experienced partner that can help you from start or from where you are today, all the way through to scale. And that experienced partner goes by the name of Mikito. They are a team of design, software development, and product strategy experts that have built over 150 successful products for startups and enterprises. So what that means is that you're a startup today, so you need the scrappy, the savvy, and the agility to build for the right now. But Ideally, you scale your company up and you end up potentially selling to enterprise. Well, Makito has got experience about the startup and the enterprise level. So they've got that agility to work with you today, but they've got the experience to know how do you make this really stick in the market so that perhaps you yourself get customers like Funwares had, like the NFL, like NASCAR, like the Olympics, right? Global iconic brands become your customers. You'll never know unless you talk to them first. So to get started, just head to mikito.com slash hype man. That's M-I-Q-U-I-D-O.com slash hype man. Mikito.com slash hype man. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we're with Randall Crowder, the COO of Funware, and we're talking about raising capital through hidden funding opportunities. Now, Randall, one of the things you mentioned before the break was the alumni groups. Now, I, I actually don't think as many founders are aware of this as an instrument of funding as I think should be. Can you just explain, and I know it's how you've raised capital or one way you've raised capital in the past. Could you just go back to that and explain like, what is the flow of money like for these alumni groups? Like, how do they come together? Why are they investing in the first place? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, really, the cool thing is they know you. Know, a lot of them know your journey. So, I mean, there, there are some alumni who are you know masters of the universe, you know, big private equity or venture capital funds. But you also think about you know every time you go to an event, you know, they always try to drag back that really successful founder or whatever. Um, and so, whether it's a, a family office, whether it's a professional institutionalized investor, or whether it's a successful entrepreneur, you know, they are your alumni, and and they are going to be predisposed to wanting to at least hear you out or help you or support you. Um, and so I think that's a great place to start. I have some experience with it because I started Texas Venture Labs at UT. Uh, and that was just, you know, it was, it was interesting because I got to see firsthand the power of it. You know, so Bill Gurley um, is a famous alumni of, of UT. A lot of people probably know him even more um, in, in wake of the Showtime Uber show, um, mm -hmm. you know, but early investor on a lot of, you know, just kind of the, the, the pinnacle companies uh, of our generation. 
amazing guy as well. Um, and, and so, you know, he's a founder of Benchmark and, you know, Benchmark is one of the best investors you could possibly raise money from. He also happens to be an alumni of UT. Uh, and so I was running a program called Venture Fellows while I was at grad school to get my MBA at McCombs, uh, got to meet him. And then I was having all of this experience while I was going through school in the real world, you know, running an angel fund, starting a VC fund, doing a lot of things, you know, kind of starting another company. Um, and I thought, you know, wow, it's a shame that more students don't get this kind of experiential learning. I wonder if I can help. And so I started Texas Venture Labs with the idea to give other graduate students this kind of real world experience with VCs and entrepreneurs uh, that I don't think they were getting in the classroom. And I needed to fund it. And so I ended up, you know, going to the donors and, and it, it was, it, you, you don't, you realize how powerful donors are and how powerful alumni are, you know, when the alumni say, look, you know, we're going to help support these initiatives, um, but we're not donating to the football team. We're donating to this to help, you know, drive, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation. And, and the dean at the time, you know, he still, he actually called me out when I was getting my diploma for doing a lot of this stuff. But, you know, I, I went to the alumni, that's the power base. Um, and, and they all know each other and they work in the same circles. And so we were able to ultimately kind of fund this organization through the alumni. Um, and it's no different than in trying to fund, you know, a, a startup or, or trying to fund a growth round, uh, going to those alumni you already have common ground. And so I really encourage people to go to events, network, you know, also help. You know, I always say, you know, as much as we're talking about, you know, receiving something, lead with value, try to be helpful to people. You know, I was building an organization. I wasn't really asking for money for myself. I was trying to help, you know, kind of train and educate uh, the next generation. Um, and so I would always say, be careful of that as well. You know, you want to be able to find ways to add value to other people, um, when and where you can. So if they ask you to, as a, as a, even as a, as a first time founder, uh, to come speak at a class or to help out with an event or mentor people, don't think, well, oh man, we're running out of money and I'm too busy. You know, always try to remember that, you know, there, there's somebody else, uh, who can look up to you as well. And so to make sure that you're adding value, uh, especially when you're working within your alumni circle. Yeah. Help others before you ask for help yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's another funding instrument that I would say is maybe, at least for the seed to Series A stage companies, perhaps the least thought of or even unknown, which is the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Now, it sounds like we're talking about an entire like country when we say a Sovereign Wealth <laughs> Fund, you are. <laughs> like, you know, like the People's Republic of Sovereign Wealth Fund or something like that. Um, can you explain what that is, how it works, and, and when it makes sense? Yeah, you know, so it's not that dissimilar. You know, you, you think about, you know, some wealthy prince in the Middle East or, you know, you, you think about, you know, some corporations almost feel like this, um, but it's, it's very large kind of strategic money. And, and again, it starts with kind of, it, it functions like a private equity fund, um, but it's tied to, you know, a nation state typically or, or tied to an organization that has kind of been blessed off on by a nation state. Um, and a lot of them have them. Um, and again, I think it comes down to, you know, networking and, and really figuring out ways that usually, and this is why I always kind of say customer funded R&D is interesting because it can lead to these things. You know, we did another deal, strategic deal with PLDT, which is uh, one of the largest telecommunications conglomerates in the Philippines. And, you know, that was with this idea of what could our software do for them and, and do for the country and, and what are some of the ways we can add value. And so, you know, while you're doing this customer funded R&D, trying to position yourself, like right now, I'll be totally honest with you, I'm, I'm networking my way 
back into Saudi Arabia because I don't know if you've seen this plan for this line city they yeah. have, but it's like probably one of the most audacious things I've ever seen. And it's this concept of building an entire city in a line um, that is more environmentally responsible and, and just super tech enabled and effectively live, work, play all within a five minute walk. And it's all built in three dimensions. I'm like, I'm going to tech enable that thing. And then, mm. you know, Toyota's building uh, mobility city in Japan. And I'm like, I'm going to tech enable that thing. You know, we live in a mobile first world, quickly becoming mobile only. Funware has got all the software. How do I get in there? And so you really just start going about like, okay, I know this person and this person. And literally like right now, I have a friend who helped a Saudi prince write a paper on blockchain and, you know, did really well. And he's always been really appreciative of that because he didn't fail out of the class and didn't make his, you know, father look stupid. And I'm like, that's my end. And so, you know, like that, that, that's kind of how asymmetric funding has to be, you know, paying attention to the, the battlefield, as you would say, you know, where are all the moving pieces, you know, where are your points of vulnerability? How do you get access to certain things? Um, and so sovereign wealth funds function, I think almost it's harder to get into them, but there's an interesting dynamic to that because they want, they don't, they, they do their own thing. Right. You know, so I like that. Like it's, they're not worried about, well, is, you know, benchmark going to invest is Sequoia and they don't care about Silicon Valley. <laughs> they're, they got more money than Silicon Valley combined. You know, Saudi Arabia doesn't care what Silicon Valley is investing in, you know? And so you have this ability to have a one-on-one -on -one pitch to somebody who is not thinking about, you know, peer pressure or community perception. They're just thinking about you as the entrepreneur, mm -hmm. you as your company, and do they want to fund it? And oh, by the way, if you get into that and, and they like you and you can maintain that relationship, you know, this is, I mean, think about like SoftBank. I mean, it's effectively a soft, SoftBank might as well be a sovereign wealth fund. I mean, SoftBank- mm -hmm. Well, actually, people don't know this, every, but a lot, of, a lot of SoftBank and Silicon Valley Bank's investable money is actually coming from the Saudi Arabian government. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, and that's, that's that, that's real power when it comes to funding. Now, a lot of entrepreneurs don't make it through that process. You know, when you start taking big money and you start taking it from very big um, organizations, you're you, that, taking a step back. So I know we didn't talk about this, just the, the hazards of all of this. The minute you take money from somebody else, it's no longer your company. Stop thinking that. You might have, you know, majority share, you might have voting power, but it's not really your company anymore. And the minute you take big money, you are expendable nine out of 10 times. Now, some people get real creative with their contracts and they protect themselves, but you need to be basically Zuckerberg to pull that off. You know, most people, you know, do not have that or, or you know, Evan uh, over at Snap. As you do, you know, when you, you know, our next, I think we're going to talk about a little bit of the public funding sources. And once you go public, it is is not your company legally lock, stock, smoke, and barrel. It's done. You are now, you know, your only goal is to maximize shareholder value. Um, it is not your company and you work on behalf of the shareholders and you can be removed, period. And so I think people need to understand that because I think people have a hard time reconciling that. You saw they removed Steve Jobs. They can remove you. And, you know, yeah, maybe they'll hire you back like they hired Steve Jobs back and you can say, I told you so. But um, when you start taking money from people and you start taking money from sovereign wealth funds and the Silicon Valley elite, you know, they are beholden to their money, their return on investment, not the entrepreneur. Now, ideally, the entrepreneur is the one who will take them to the promised land. But if they feel like you are not the one, you are expendable. 
One more question here before we begin our wrap up, and this is looking you know, down the road as you start to make that journey towards going public. It's a, it's a vehicle that's been popularized over the last couple of years. It's called a SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Ooh. Company. Uh, a friend of mine um, no longer is there, but was actually at um, FaZe Clan, which is the first ever esports team to go public. And they recently yeah. went public via SPAC. Um, can you talk through, and you've got personal experience with this, like, I guess the best well, Wikipedia I used to have notes. hair before my experience <laughs> with this. Now I just have a long flowing hair and then I, I mer- we merged with a sack and now I'm bald. What are you going to do? You know? <laughs> can you give us, you know, the Wikipedia, the cliff notes version of what a SPAC is and why, why yeah. that would be a potential path? Yeah. First and foremost, I would tell you, don't do it. Now I'm going to walk you back from it on where you can do it. Um, okay. Back for most people is not a good idea. Um, it was not a good idea for us. And again, you know, talk about a pivot, talk about learning, talk about getting punched in the face. If I could do it over again, I would 100% not do it. Um, I wish we didn't do it. A SPAC is a non-operating entity that is taken public. It's effectively a public version of venture capital. You raise a bunch of money from people. You park that money in a SPAC that trades on NASDAQ, it doesn't trade because nobody cares. It's just kind of flat lines, but it just sits there. And it's got a certain amount of time in which it can merge with a private company. The private company gets the money in the SPAC and then the private company takes over the ticker symbol. So it's an easier on-ramp for a private company to go public. Then it's called an S4 rather than an yeah, S1. Yeah, and then you have to go through the S1 process and do the roadshow exactly, and everything. Exactly. And the, yeah, exactly. That roadshow with like, you know, you know, Goldman Sachs or whatever. That all sounds well and good. But here's, a, here's the, the dirty little secret. SPACs were never meant to find great innovative companies. When you have these masters of the universe with large funds, a lot of times they receive management fees based on committed capital. Well, what if they don't have anything they want to invest in? They call that cash and they commit it to a SPAC. Now they can pull down management fees on that commanded capital, even though they never invested in anything. And the reason why they do that is because they can redeem from the SPAC whenever they want. They can park their money in the SPAC, pull down management fees, and the minute they want the money back, they can pull the money out of the SPAC. And all along the way, they get warrants in whatever company that SPAC ends up merging with, whether they leave their money there or not. It's a dirty little secret. And if you're an entrepreneur, you should kind of work into the deal docs not to allow this. Mm-hmm. You need to understand what money is going to be in that SPAC at close, because a lot of people are just parking their money in that SPAC and they have no intention of sticking around. And so even though this is a funding source, it wasn't for us. By the time we merged with our SPAC, there was almost 100% redemption. And so this was in December of 2018, right (laughs) before the government shut down. A lot of funds were hurting and they needed the capital because the market was crashing. Everybody redeemed. And so we affected basically a direct listing. And this is why your example is really good when it comes to SPACs. The best people to do a SPAC are if you have name brand recognition. You already have community. You already have brand awareness. It is not a good vehicle just because you think you're a good company, unless you have just like crazy numbers. And if you have crazy good numbers, you might as well do an S1. But if you don't have crazy numbers, then you need to have a crazy brand. You need to be Richard Branson, Donald Trump, an esports team, 
Spotify, you know, you need something where people go, oh, I know that company. I'm going to invest in that company because otherwise you have no support in the public markets once you go public. And you have, you, it will Yeah, there's no like you. name equity, right? So, exactly. what, is, what does it matter that exactly. once you're public if, there's, if no one knows who you are? And that's what people don't realize. You know, there's the business of running your business and then there's a business of being a public company. It's no different than being an elected official. Like you have to actually do your job, which I question if anybody actually does their job as a politician anymore, (laughs) but they spend most of their time on like trying to stay elected or getting elected. And, and, you know, they just kind of get distracted from their real business, but that's being public. You have to be in the business of being public, you know, IR, investor relations, you know, PR, marketing, roadshows, non-deal roadshows, shareholder meetings. There's all this stuff that you now have to do that you didn't have to do as a private company. And then, oh, by the way, the administrative burden. So if you're going to do that, you really got to understand, you know, what are the resources you're getting? Is it worth the cost? Um, and, and a lot of times with a SPAC, it is not. Because, you know, if you don't have that brand recognition that can really grow that community the minute you go public, you don't have a safety net. You don't have, you know, you, know, you need analysts covering your stock. You need banks um, you need some level of market making effectually, and you don't want that to be hedge funds, which are just shorting your stock and, and just trying to you know, put downward price pressure and play this kind of churn game on volatility. Um, and so be very wary of SPACs and read the fine print in SPACs. Look at the warrants and what those warrants can do. Uh, because what you don't want to do is have a bunch of people who park their money, pull their money. Now they have warrants in your company and sometimes they can cashless exercise those warrants. So now they can zero cost basis. They can print money on your stock um, and put a lot of downward price pressure on your stock. So there's a lot of gamesmanship when it comes to SPACs. SPACs are like this financial engineering thing that, you know, is almost like an ICO in the public market. So it's like, you know, there's these crypto tools, which is a whole other funding source we can <laughs> talk about next time. Um, but, you know, this ability to quickly print money, make some people some money, and then all of a sudden retail's left holding the bag and you're like, well, where do we go from here? Uh, and sometimes that's a really hard journey. We've faced that journey firsthand uh, and it's been a challenge. Let's begin our wrap up. Randall, where can our listeners find you? Where can they find Funware? Where can they learn more? Yeah, easy to find. You know, I'm Randall Crowder on just about everything. Randall Crowder uh, at Randall Crowder on uh, Instagram is two L's. Um, I'm Crowder official on Twitter. I have Randall Crowder, uh, but I have no idea what my password is. So maybe one day I'll figure out what that is and, and, and go back to Randall Crowder on Twitter. But for now, it's Crowder official. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Same thing, Randall Crowder. You can learn about Funware, funware.com. It's Funware with a P, it's fun with a PH. Um, you know, we also have a really cool blockchain ecosystem we're building out. So you can download Fun Wallet. Uh, on iOS and Android. Uh, you can actually check out Fund Token, which is our utility token. Uh, and then we also have a security token coming out called FunCoin. So we're the first public company uh, to ever uh, kind of issue its own digital assets in this manner. So we're setting a lot of milestones, which are really cool. Uh, but yeah, I'm easy to find. You know, I, I, I hope that this was helpful to people. Um, if I can be more helpful, please let me know how. Um, and please, you know, help each other out. And, and really kind of look for ways to, again, you know, not only be the best version of yourself in your own entrepreneurial journey, uh, but how to add value to other people's entrepreneurial journey as well. Randall, who is one person who you want to give a shout out to who's been helpful for you on your journey? My mom, hands down, hand down. I'm, you know, I think being supportive, but figuring out how to give me enough latitude to make mistakes um, and not hold them against me is something only a parent can do. 
Um, I just found out that I'm expecting my first, um, in, you know, in March and yeah, uh, we found out a week before the wedding. I just got married a couple weeks ago. And so we announced it at the wedding. <laughs> I'm adulting fast. I, yeah, I, I waited <laughs> a long time, but I'm adulting fast, but that's why it's on my mind right now. But it, you know, it's no different than being a good CEO, a good founder, a good leader, um, you know, figuring out how to resource and support people but also let them kind of pursue their own journey, their own learning and, and being there to not just tell them you, you screwed up, um, but being there to help them on that journey. I don't always get that right. And I hope I can figure out a whole lot in the next, you know, six, seven months um, to be just kind of half the parent my mom was. Uh, but my mom figured it out in spades and gave me enough room to learn and grow on my own. And so I, I owe her and, and my father who has passed um, you know, I owe them, you know, everything that I am today for sure. Let's now give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based off of our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. Our topic today was raising capital through hidden funding opportunities. Obviously we covered a lot. Uh, what I want everyone to walk away with is actually one of the things you said near the end there, Randall, which is there's the business of being in business and the business of running your company, you've got to be on top of both. Yeah, you're 100% right. I think I'll go back to the beginning of the call, um, you know, when I kind of said this idea of the pain of regret uh, versus the pain of discipline. And, and I'm, you know, it sounds kind of like a, you know, a t-shirt, but that discipline is going to those meetups. It's putting yourself out there. It's pitching everywhere you can. It's not trying to game the system. It's, you know, being consistent and authentic, you know, discipline is consistency of action. And as an entrepreneur, that is so critical because motivation will come and go motivation. You'll be in state and you'll be like, I'm going to take over the world. And then the next day, you know, you're down. And so you got to have conviction. Conviction will beat motivation every day. And, and conviction comes through discipline. It means you're going to be organized and dedicated and committed. And when it's hard, you're still going to do it. My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Randall. Entrepreneurship is blank. Life. I mean, you know, it, it, entrepreneurship is life because it, it, is, it will show you what you're made of. It will show you what it's like to operate without a safety net. You know, I, I get it. The allure of the big corporate gig, um, you know, but you're never going to know, you know, could you do it on your own? Could you, and I'm not saying everybody's got to be an entrepreneur. Don't get me wrong. Um, but this is kind of this, con this, this is something that makes you feel alive. You know, it, it is working without a safety net, knowing that if you don't do it, no one else will. You know, my wife gets on me all the time. She's like, you know, why are, why are you working on the weekend? It's because like, I don't have, anybody else to do a lot of the things I do. And that gets me up in the morning. You know, entrepreneurship makes you feel alive because, you know, you really get to test, you know, the outer limits of your potential. Um, and you really get to understand what you're made of and you really get to put yourself out there and then have people respond to that. And then, you know, that is, I think one of the, the most special things you can do is put yourself out there and be willing to, you know, withstand the criticism. And, you know, if you're willing to persevere, you know, God put, you know, the most amazing things in your life on the other side of terror. Entrepreneurship is life. He is Randall Crowder, COO of Funware. Randall, thank you so much for joining today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast.
Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And listeners, don't forget, coming soon is the official startup hype man mixtape. That's right. We're dropping a hip hop album about the founder journey. And up to this point, I've been giving the tentative title of the startup mixtape, but I think I now have the official title of the album of the mixtape and we'll see if it holds. But right now, the tentative title that I'm going with is Burn Rate Volume 1. So be on the lookout for Burn Rate Volume 1 hitting your Spotify feeds late 2022. But if you want to be the first to know it and get exclusive access to the singles when they drop before the whole album drops, just subscribe to our point of view letter at startuphypeman.com. We'll see you next week. That's a wrap on this one. Shout out to our guest once again for sharing their story with us. If what you heard impacted you, do one of three things. One, let our guests know. Reach out to them directly. They love hearing from you. Two, leave a rating and review on Apple. Or three, simply hit the share button and share this episode with one friend who you think would benefit from hearing it. Catch our full episode archive at startuphypeman.com slash podcast. And if you want to make your pitch not suck, reach out to us through the website. That's all for this week. We'll catch you next time. Raj Nation out. Believe the hype.